We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan of the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Hello, Gavin. Hey, good evening. And also with us today, we've got Taiwan-based freelance reporter and former head of the Foreign Correspondents Club, Jane Rickards. Good evening, Keith. Good evening. On the show today, politics get interesting real fast for the new Tsai administration. We'll discuss Tuesday's mini-occupation of the legislative UN. We'll also take a look at Tsai's pledges to reform the military after her first visit to an airbase as commander-in-chief. And we'll also talk about how Taiwan's mayors fared in national satisfaction ratings. Spoiler alert, Mayor Ke is having a bit of a tough time. But first, what is the deal with this weather? No, seriously, it's been all over the map this week. First, Taipei got hit with record high temperatures on Wednesday, topping out at 38.7 degrees in the early afternoon, making it the highest temperatures ever recorded in the city in June. And that's just day one of June that it got there. Then on Thursday, just to keep things interesting, the weather gods served up a sucker punch and we got torrential rain in northern Taiwan. The rain, in turn, created a real Noah's Ark-type situation at Taoyuan International Airport with massive flooding that stalled more than 200 flights. Uh, so let's start with that weather, uh, get some of that weathery jargon stuff out of the way. Uh, the newspapers are saying it was caused by a frontal system, Gavin? Apparently, the sweltering heat in Taipei was due to the effect of clear skies and southwesterly winds, as well as the strengthening of a high-pressure system in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. So harked the Central Weather Bureau. All right. Anyway, it was a damn hot day. It was 38.7 degrees on Wednesday. Not that I noticed, because I was inside in the air conditioning. There you go. Lucky you. But apparently it was the hottest day for June recorded in 120 years since the Taipei Weather Station was established in 1896. There's a bit of history for you. But anyway, according to the Central Weather Bureau, the mercury climbed to 37.9 degrees near noon on Wednesday and it increased to 38.7 degrees at 2.46pm in the afternoon. All right. It's quite pleasant, if you ask me. But it was quite interesting, though, because, of course, the mercury in Dawu Township... Now, mm-hmm. Dawu Township is in Taidong County on the southeastern coast, and apparently this is traditionally the hottest place in Taiwan. Well, on Wednesday, Taipei outdid it by point four degrees. There we go. We're number one. Dawu mm. was 38.3 degrees, while Taipei was 38.7 degrees. All righty. So now, it wasn't case, just your imagination. It no, was pretty rough. It was uh, pretty rough. But just in case anyone's interested, um, that was the highest temperature for June in Taipei ever recorded. Mm-hmm. But if you're interested, the hottest day for Taipei since records began, that's any month of the year, mm-hmm. was 39.3 degrees. And that was on August the 8th of 2013. Okay. So that is uh, the record to beat. Uh, We're we're already hitting high numbers early on in the year, so who knows? Maybe 2016's the year to top that. But it's not actually a good thing. Well, much as I like the heat, it's not very good. No. Because Thai power are getting a bit antsy. Yeah, and we'll get into that in a second. But first, let's take a look uh, at the rain that hit on Thursday. I, for one, did not see this coming. I came to work uh, chipper, expecting clear skies, sunny days, more warm weather. And uh, the clouds overhead looked like the apocalypse was rolling, and it was thunder, lightning, and rain. Uh, and it, uh, it hit Taoyuan Airport pretty hard. 
Apparently it did, yes. There was flooding at Taoyuan International Airport. This is, of course, what the government liked to say, Taiwan's main gateway and transportation flight hub. Well, it was a bit of a wet day. Sort of a similar gateway to uh, Alexandria, you know. It's uh, got a bit of a, almost a port. Yeah, basically, yeah. It was a port yesterday, you could say. Well done, Keith. There you go. It was a port, not an airport. And heavy rain poured down for three hours in the Taoyuan area. And apparently total rainfall equaled 16 centimetres in that time period. <laughs> You're kidding me. <coughs> 165 I mean, millimetres, it, apparently 16 centimetres. And it was over a very short period of time. It was over time. three hours, yeah. yeah. Well, this turned Taoyuan International Airport, which is in Taoyuan, near the coast, mm-hmm. the west coast, into a bit of an island, as you said, and built the building itself... The flooding, there was flooding inside the building, Mm -hmm. there was flooding outside the building, there was flooding on express roads to the airport, so nothing could leave the airport. If you were at the terminal building in a car, you were basically stuck there until the rain subsided. Of course, the rains caused all sorts of other problems at the airport, mainly dealing with electricity problems, Mm. where certain parts of the airport were down, baggage channels were down. Right, so that's why a lot of flights were impacted. I think 30,000 people uh, saw delays. Yeah, 30,000 people and 200 flights, apparently. Right, and so it's 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 weird because they say this is the worst flooding that's hit Taoyuan Airport ever, uh, but it's not like this is the first torrential rain to hit Taoyuan Airport ever. So uh, what was different this time? What, what Where was the problem? Shoddy construction work, if you believe the Premier. Because mm-hmm. he's blamed shoddy construction work at the airport because, of course, the airport's being renovated, of course. Right, so we're not talking about the buildings that are there. We're talking about actual ongoing work right now, the, the construction sites. Yeah, and also the buildings because the work... Oh, also the buildings. Everything, basically, because they're working on the buildings, there's lots of... So recent construction work. Recent construction Mm. work, and there's problems with the drainage systems there as well. They reckon Mm -hmm. that the shoddy construction work that's going on there now, possibly the drainage systems were blocked, which led to bigger flooding in the area, Mm -hmm. and the lack of adequate draining at the construction sites itself. Okay. So basically, they're the construction sites that are underway. They flooded. Of course, there was runoff from those construction sites. The Mm. water had nowhere to go except inside the building. But the Premier is going to bat for us. He is, apparently. He's going to say, I'm holding everyone responsible for this. If you Mm -hmm. made a mistake and I can prove it, then there you go. You might be looking (laughs) for a new job. All right, good deal. Thanks, uh, Mr. Lean. Uh, okay, now moving away from uh, that particular epic plague and uh, to the hot weather, uh, because, uh, as as Gavin mentioned a second ago, the hot weather poses not just a, a sticky, uncomfortable problem, but also a problem uh, for utilities, because, it, it you know, this was the first really hot day of the year, and already it kind of pushed our power reserves to the limit, is what it looked like. Apparently it did. This is this is Tuesday's figures. Thai Power released Tuesday's figures when it was slightly cooler than Wednesday. Mm-hmm. But apparently it was it was a good thirty six degrees on Tuesday this week. A breezy thirty six. Yeah. Anyway, Thai Power says the percentage of their operating reserves fell to one point six four percent of the peak load. That That's doesn't a, sound like a lot. Well, it doesn't sound. Let me finish. That was at one fifty three p.m. in the afternoon. But mm-hmm. that was in fact the lowest in ten years. Yeah. Now power uses on Tuesday was the highest so far this year. And Thai Power said that basically peak power supply could reach 35.2 million kilowatts. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a bit of a dangerous situation because that leaves an operating reserve margin of 516,000 kilowatts, which also is a lot, but... 
and there's a big but here, that amount is just 16,000 kilowatts higher than the level at which the company would be forced to actually prepare for power rationing. Power rationing being a euphemism for power cuts, power cuts, rolling power cuts. So we're kind of rubbing up against that borderline right there where power cuts might be in the cards. Uh, Interestingly, though, the cabinet came out later in the week and said that uh, it's stay in the course, still planning to shut off those nuclear plants and the timeline that it has uh, given, which, uh, you know, when we're looking at power cuts, shutting down power plants becomes an even dicier sort of business. So, uh, Jane, should does this week tell us anything about uh, Taiwan's power woes, electricity woes, or is this just, you know, one bad week? Um, I think it does tell us quite a bit because I think that, as you said, um, power supply is an ongoing issue in mm-hmm. Taiwan. I think the DPP's goal and Tsai Ing-wen's administration's goal of having a nuclear-free Taiwan by 2025 mm-hmm. Um, I think this is just a reminder of um, the problems that they're going to face. Right. Um, Because, of course, the other half of that pledge was no power cuts. Yes. Well, and also, I mean, Tsai Ing-wen has promised to, um, you know, to increase business ties, say, with America and Japan and encourage foreign investment here. And to do that, you must have a stable supply of electricity. And so her goal for a nuclear-free Taiwan could contradict this. Um, Mm. The 17% of Taiwan's electricity supply comes from nuclear power and renewables at a very, very small percentage, I would say under 5%. So, um, and then the government also has plans for um, carbon emissions by 20% by 2030 and 50% by 2050. So how they're going to achieve all this is a big question mark. And uh, AmCham, the American Chamber of Mm. Commerce yesterday, actually came out and said Mm. it is a big question mark. And they Mm. uh, called on Sai to kind of clarify exactly what her plan is going to be. Yes. Well, businesses want to know, obviously, because if you invest, it's not for one or two years. It's for the long term. Right. Um, And it's not that it's – there has been sort of speculation that Tsai Ing-wen might be forced – I went to sort of experts are saying that Tsai Ing-wen could be forced to extend the life of one of the nuclear power plants, mm-hmm. which is scheduled to be decommissioned. I think the first one starting in 2018, but there's speculation that she might be forced to extend their life. Right. Um, then, of course, there's the question about the fourth nuclear power plant. Yes. The mothballed one. Well, mm. I think it'll probably she stay might, mothballed. I don't know. There's some. Well, I don't know. I mean, do they, when they close down the old one, mm-hmm. do they go, well, this is a bit old? Maybe we should open the new one because it's newer. What I've heard from experts, it's more likely that the um, the politically easier choice would probably to extend the life of one of the existing ones because mm. the fourth one is just such a political hot potato. Right. Yeah. Then of course there's questions about the safety, of course, of the older ones, aren't there? there right. A, yeah. There was a, alleged, some revelations. An alleged explosion. An alleged one explosion. Of them this week. When I say alleged, yes. big block capital letters, I use the word alleged there. Well, there were photographs yes. that. Uh, ah, but the photographs only showed charred equipment. Of course, mm-hmm. the charred equipment, according to Thai Power, was caused by a temperature fluctuation, mm. not an explosion. Well, explosions do have temperature fluctuations. But anyway, uh, we don't quite have time to go all the way into that story, so I guess we're just going to have to leave it uh, nice and ambiguous and uh, alleged, just like that. Uh, and all of that is just to kind of underscore, as we have several times, uh, the real challenges facing the Thai administration, uh, especially on the energy front. Uh, we're going to move now, though, on to politics and a whole lot more challenges for the incoming Thai administration. You know, we're just easing into this administration. Uh, and one big question for me getting into this 
uh, has been, uh, you know, how are the parties going to play with one another? You know, we've had all those pronouncements of bipartisan reconciliation, bipartisan cooperation, a new era in Taiwan politics. Uh, So I've been wondering, how is that really going to work once the rubber hits the road? Well, if this week is any indication whatsoever, not too well, I think is the answer, uh, unfortunately, that we're being given. Because Tuesday went a little crazy. Tuesday went a little off the rails. Uh, We had KMT legislators occupying podiums inside the legislature. Uh, We had pig farmers, and I do not mean that pejoratively. I mean literal (laughs) men and women that their business is farming pigs. Uh, They were protesting outside of the legislature. They even had kind of a Pink Floyd-esque giant pig (laughs) sort of sculpture that they were bouncing around here and there. Uh, the day's business had to be put on hold completely. It was so disruptive. Uh, Gavin, tell us a little bit about Tuesday. This is when the Premier, Lin Chuan, was meant to deliver his first policy report. His very first one! Mm. He hasn't done anything yet. His first office. report. Now, this all got sparked by a report from a newspaper. I believe it was the China Times newspaper that reported this. Now, the China Times newspaper made the lofty claim, and I say a lofty claim because it was rather a lofty claim, that the Tsai administration has decided to allow the importation of US pork containing the leanness-enhancing drug ractopamine. The newspaper also claimed that the Tsai administration had given the green light to the importation of foodstuffs from parts of Japan affected by, of course, the Fukushima nuclear meltdown in 2011. Mm -hmm. And there was also claim claims that the Thai administration was putting its hand up and surrendering, basically, to Mm -hmm. Japan over fishing rights near the Okanatori Atoll. Right. Now, the Premier came out... Oh, the Premier... In fact, let's let's start at the beginning. The Premier didn't come out and say this, because the Premier wasn't allowed to come out and say this, because he couldn't get into the legislative building. But the next day, Wednesday, the Cabinet met at a press conference. And at the Cabinet, Cabinet officials in charge of these areas basically denied these things. The cabinet said, no, we are we still contemplating, thinking about, mulling, considering, holding talks on, debating whether to open the island to US pork containing ractopamine. Mm-hmm. We have no plans to immediately open Taiwan to Japanese foodstuffs produced in basically the Fukushima prefecture, where the nuclear meltdown happened. And as for the Okinotori Atoll, well, we're going to hold talks with Japan on this matter next month. Hmm. All right. Well, let's uh, let's take each one of those sort of issues a little bit separately. I mean, I, I just actually getting back to the actual events of Tuesday. The bottom line is, Premier shows up to give his first report. A whole day goes by, and he can't do it. I mean, and that's that's you know Tuesday at the Legislative Yuan, a very disruptive day. Uh, but let's start with pork. I mean, this kind of all goes back to. Uh, Council of Agricultural Minister, uh, at the time, Minister-designate Cao Shichuang, back in April 21st, uh, he gave an interview uh, in which he said that he was not shutting the door to U.S. pork containing uh, ractopamine. So a lot of people saw this as the Tsai administration sort of tipping their hand that they had plans in the works to perhaps uh, open the door to ractopamine. So this has been kind of an ongoing thing for some time now, and obviously on Tuesday it boiled over. Jane, 
I mean, how much do we know about what the Tide administration is is actually planning? I mean, do you, do you find that credible? Of course, if the Tide administration wants to move forward with various trade negotiations, if, especially the Trans-Pacific Partnership sort of negotiations, uh, some sort of compromise on this issue is uh, maybe necessary. But do, do, do you think that there are, are real grounds here to, to see the Thai administration as moving in the direction of opening up the door to uh, pork imports? Yes, I think they'll have to. Mm-hmm. If Taiwan wants to join the TPP and if Taiwan wants to deepen its trade ties with the US, um, I think there's, the, Taiwan will have absolutely no way it'll have to open up to pork imports. That's what I've been told by various experts and um, American business people sort of Yep. Right. So the the protest itself, uh, especially from the the pig farmers, not entirely unfounded here. No, of course not. But mm-hmm. um, I, I would sort of point out a few things about the protest. Um, first of all, the media reported that there were hundreds of people. Now, if you consider the student sunflower movement when the parliament was occupied by students, mm. a claimed half a million people took to the streets against Maying Zhou's pro-China policies. Well, this is definitely a nichier sort of issue. Yes, exactly. And the pork farmers are very well organised and they have very mm-hmm. good connections with legislators. Right. And um, so, yes, their fears are grounded. Um but what I would also say is that the pork farmers have been – some scientists, some agricultural science professors I've interviewed at Tidar have said that um, the pork farmers here actually use a form of ractopamine themselves illegally. Mm. And um, that uh, Taiwan's pork industry is very much threatened by large-scale American farming because it's – you know, the land the pork farmers occupy here is much smaller, so the production costs are much higher. Right. So, I mean, there's a considerable amount of protectionism involved here. Right. Well, I mean, I'm no scientist. I can't comment on ractopamine, Mm -hmm. but clearly if it was purely a public health and a food safety issue, it wouldn't just be pig farmers out there protesting. Well, that's the thing, because they've thrown it back, haven't they, really? The KMT, of course, allowed U.S. Beef into Taiwan containing ractopamine after people jumped up and down and screamed, Ractopamine's all going to turn us bright blue, pink, and polka dot and give us five heads if we eat it. This, if you come from America, has been disproven. Apparently, ractopamine doesn't make you glow in the dark. Now, however, in Europe. We can turn off the lights and check on me. I probably grew up on this stuff. But in Europe, ractopamine is still considered a no no. I believe mm. in China, ractopamine is still considered a no no. And Russia, too. And Russia, too. And But in Japan and Korea, they both let ractopamine products in from the United States, but they label their mm-hmm. products. So if you go and buy a joint in Japan, a joint of pork in Japan, <laughs> you have something, a label that says this contains ractopamine. So right. you have a choice of going, I'll take the ractopamine version or I'll take the regular version. Right. And I think that we have heard some proposals to that effect here in Taiwan yeah. as well. So the, the, the health argument is a non-starter as far as mm. I'm concerned. The KMT let the beef in with ractopamine. Now they don't want to let the pork in because it's got ractopamine in. It's the same stuff, just in a different meat. Mm. Well, that would be another comment I would make about the situation politically is that I think the KMT, this shows the KMT is opportunistic mm-hmm. that they don't, and they're ideologically bankrupt. They don't have a clear policy, like as Gavin just pointed out, that they, were, they usually stand for trade liberalisation mm-hmm. and Mayung Joel made a decision to let some parts of beef in with ractopamine and now they're suddenly against it because it's politically expedient because that they can give the ruling party problems. Mm. So um, that's opposed to a party, say, with a consistent ideology, which we want to do this because this is our principle or this is our policy. The KMT isn't doing that at all. They're just mm. taking advantage of 
um, people's strong feelings against ractopamine. Right. Um, but I would also add, too, about your comments that the size of the protest reflects it's not a real health concern. I don't think that's the case because I think that um, the public really – no one really knows because no one's a scientist. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying um, – I'm not saying whether – I'm just saying the smallness of the, the relative smallness of the protest shows that the public aren't willing to sort of come out en masse. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I, I want to hit on uh, the, the real political implications of Tuesday in just a second. But before we get there, uh, I want to hit the other two uh, controversies uh, and explain those to our listeners. I think the Japanese food imports, I think folks out there understand that there's you know, been a ban on uh, Japanese food imports from areas that are affected by uh, nuclear fallout from the Fukushima stuff. Uh, we've covered that a number of times. Uh, but the the Japanese fishing issue, uh, I was I was wondering. So you know the the accusation here is that uh, the Tsai administration is not really holding the line uh, on on Japan, and you know perhaps being you know less aggressive uh, on the whole Akanatori atoll issue. Uh, is there anything to that? Well, um, I would say that um, Okinotori Reef does not meet the description of an island. And so, and so the DPP saying that we're going to wait for UN arbitration, some people say that is why, why do you need to wait? It's obviously not an island. Yes, I would say that the DPP um, wants to have better security ties with Japan. They want closer trade ties with Japan. I mean, Tsai Ing-wen said on the second day she was elected, she wanted to negotiate a free trade deal with Japan. So the DPP is obviously being more, you know, they've got their gloves, what's, They've got. They're being. They're taking a much softer approach with fighting with their gloves on. Yeah, fighting with their gloves on. They're taking a much softer approach with Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with both the Okinotori situation and the situation with the pork farmers, I think in, in any economic deepening of ties with other countries, they're always going to be winners and losers. Mm. And I think the, I think a certain amount of political compromise is just part of life. So I, right. I think it's really just a question of um, how much time one's public is going to tolerate it. Mm. I don't think there's a right or wrong approach, although I would say Okinotori is definitely not an island. All right. So that, I think, uh, helps our listeners understand just a, a little bit uh, kind of where these various issues are coming from. I mean, they're not coming out of nowhere. Uh, but uh, let's take a look now at the broader uh, political significance of all this. Uh, I mean... In a normal, the, the normal functioning of a democracy, you know, what you expect is you have a dispute. You know, you just outlined mm. the, 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 the real, there, you know, there are real philosophical uh, worldview disputes to be had here. You, can, you could view the, uh, this, all of these things in a lot of different ways and say, no, this is how we should deal with it, not this. But in the normal functioning of a democratic government, you know, you go up to the podium, you make your little speech, then you have a vote, and whoever comes out on top, that's the way it goes. That's not what happened Tuesday. I mean, the the process was shut down on Tuesday, uh, and it seems like we may be going back to uh, exactly what we saw during the last several years of uh, stalled government, no policy getting through, lots of grandstanding, but nothing actually happening. Uh, am I overreading this? Am I am I turning this into more of a thing than it actually is, or, or is that your ex- expectation yeah, as well? Keith, in my personal view, I think you just hit the nail on the head. I think the KMT is adopting the the traditional DPP tactics. I'm not mm-hmm. saying all DPP are like that, but sort of right. traditional DPP tactics. We, we certainly saw it a lot over the yes. last several years, and I think it shows this kind of um, parliamentary behaviour is part and parcel of Taiwanese political life. It's not confined to one party, and right. yes, it's very disrespectful to, to democracy. And um, it's not respecting institutions. I thought that the sunflower protests were borderline, but I, I think, in my view, that this is just deliberately 
yeah. Well, there violating a... democrat. I mean, it's clear that the DPP won a majority, and um, right. Yeah. I mean, there is a little bit of a distinction between the yes. sunflower protests and this, just in the yes. sense that I'm not the first person to point this out. Yes. Just in the sense that the sunflower movement went to great pains to say, you know, we are not mm. the DPP. We're mm. you know a, a grassroots organization. Mm. Uh, exactly. It seems pretty clear that uh, the protests on Tuesday had mm. KMT connections. I mean, the KMT yes. came out and apl- uh, Hong Shouju came out and applauded them and said, good yes. job, guys. So it seems like there's a bit more of a connection there. Yes, I think it's very regressive kind of political behaviour, basically. I think, I thought, I would hope that Taiwan could move forward and that people would start to, institutions, I think that as Taiwan emerged out of authoritarianism, um, such behaviour was probably necessary just to mm-hmm. force change and get people to wake up. Mm-hmm. But now Taiwan's a young democracy. It's got its institutions. And I think now it needs to work at maturing the democracy and strengthening institutions so we don't see this kind of behaviour anymore. Is there is there anything at this point that the DPP can do uh, to, you know, make some nod to unity? Or, I mean, is is, is that it? Should we just sort of resign ourselves to this sort of political theatre? Yeah, well, there's also an element of democracy through me- via media or mm-hmm. trial by media in Taiwan. Um, the problem is, um, is I, I mean, like, for example, getting in the legislative police just to kind of remove the KMT from the podium that's not going to go down well with the public because it kind mm-hmm. of smacks of the authoritarian era and there's going to be allegations about the ruling party that you're becoming the dictators you once opposed. So right. I think in that sense, um, Taiwan's kind of different from, say, more mature democracies like, say, Australia, where, um, you know, that, that wouldn't be questioned so much. But because this was once a police state, if the police get heavy-handed with anyone, right. there's a lot of sensitivity towards that. So... I don't know, Gavin. Do you have any thoughts about what the DPP can do about the KMT I occupying the DPP the would have to hope that when the KMT have their next chairmanship election, the current chairwoman is deposed. Mm. Mm. So, so, so you would trace a lot of this back gonna, to her. Well, her because of her policies. Her yeah. policies are Weishung China policies, which basically lost the KMT the election. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think the KMT just needs to have vision. There are too many um, older people in leadership, not just Hong Shouju, and a lot of them are mainlanders, as Gavin pointed out. And basically, as I said, I think the KMT is ideologically bankrupt. And if it had kind of a vision, which could include um, much of the Taiwanese public could identify with, and they acted according to principles rather than just opportunism to, like, oh, here's a chance to stuff up the new administration. Mm-hmm. I think in the long term, they'd have much more of a future. Mm. All right. Well, this is maybe the least balanced conversation we've ever had, but nothing much to do about it. No, I, look, I think we're all on the same page here. Um, look, no, I, I'm, I don't have anything against the KMT. I no. want to stress that. I'm talking about this particular incident. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Maying Joel's, um, I personally think that Maying Joel's, um, Maying Joel exhibited quite um, clever and agile diplomacy when he mm-hmm. was able to um, sign free trade agreements with the first um, two countries who weren't Taiwan's allies, mm-hmm. um, Singapore and New Zealand. I would like to stress, I'm just talking about this particular incident, which I think showed contempt for democracy. Right. All right. Contempt for democracy. Uh, I think we just came up with the uh, title for the podcast, perhaps. I uh, have to think about that one for a bit. But for now, we are coming up on a break, so we're going to need to end it there. When we return... Some have said the military was sidelined during the Ma administration. We'll talk about what may be in store in the years to come. And after the love is gone, you've still got your job as mayor of Taipei, I guess. We'll take a look at Mayor Ka's sagging support. All that and more when we return.
Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps and Jane Rickards. Jumping back in and leaving behind the chaos in Taipei, President Tsai attended to some very different head of state business this week as well, making her first visit to an Air Force base as commander-in-chief. Uh, Gavin, tell us a little bit about that visit. She went to two air bases in Hualien on the east coast. As you said, she basically went to the bases as the commander-in-chief, head of state. And in fact, she went there as the first female commander-in-chief of the Republic of China military. There you go. Mm. A first. Now, while at the bases, she delivered speeches, talked to the troops, and she basically touted the DPP's policies to elevate the dignity of military personnel, to make a career in the armed forces an attractive option, and lead the military into a new era. Mm, Right. So a lot of those statements kind of reflecting some of the challenges uh, that Taiwan is facing now having a career army rather than, you know, conscription or moving towards that soon. Uh, Also kind of reflecting some of her campaign promises. uh, Namely, she uh, talked a lot during her campaign about uh, domestic production of uh, military hardware, especially submarines, uh, talking about cyber defense and uh, really boosting the profile of uh, cyber defense mechanisms in Taiwan, and also just increasing the budget, because uh, as a lot of people have pointed out, uh, the military budget uh, decreased somewhat under the Ma administration. Uh, Jane, what do you expect uh, from the Tsai administration on this front, just in terms of uh, whether or not there really will be a military buildup? Um, I think she's absolutely determined to build um, sort of an indigenous um, weaponry in- um, industry, I would just point out that in 2008, Ma promised to increase defence spending to 3% of GDP, which mm-hmm. is what um, the Americans usually want of Taiwan, and it just hovered above 2%. And it was also hovering above 2% in the final days of Chen Shui-bian. Mm. And um, there are a lot of constraints of the budget that it always gets eaten away by sort of um, meat and potato issues in the LY and things like that. So oh, I think it's... So I guess I shouldn't say that there was a drop in the Ma administration. It held about level? It, I think, from my memory, it held about level with the mm-hmm. last two years of the Chen administration because I remember when Ma was elected in 2008 and he's just said it had been below 3% for too long and he would raise it to 3%. Mm-hmm. And what usually happens is there are a lot of, as I said, a lot of bread and butter issues in the legislature. Right, and um, Tsai may face similar issues. She could, yes. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it's good thing that um, the legislature is dominated by the DPP, so she may have more power over this. Mm-hmm. Um, and otherwise, yes, I would say she's pretty determined. I mean, her appointment of the defence minister who once headed a state-run aerospace company sort of says mm-hmm. it all, really. Mm, yeah, more of a focus on industry. Mm. Uh, Gavin, what do you see in the next couple of years? Well, the DPP government, when they came into office, before they came into office, in fact, released a defence blue paper, not a white paper this time, it's a blue paper, <laughs> in which they said that they were going to use the first year, basically, of them being in power as a wait-and-see period. And while they'll push ahead with the design stage for the submarines they want to build, other things will wait. Obviously, more purchases of arms from the US will wait as they review what they need but the only thing they hope to move forward through in this year is new training aircraft for the Air Force because mm. the Air Force wants to phase out its old training aircraft and phase in new ones and there's a couple of choices AIDC have given them two choices in fact of uh, possible new training aircraft Okay, so moving forward on that front I mean a lot of analysts are saying well, I mean, the uh, Ministry of National Defense came out with a report last year that said that, you know, the mainland could uh, hold a successful invasion of Taiwan by 2020. So 
Uh, a lot of uh, analysts are saying, that, uh, you know, these things need to happen sooner rather than later uh, if a real deterrent is going to be there. But of course, there's also the issue of the U.S. election. Mm-hmm. which is another mm-hmm. big matter, because while Taiwan can pump money into research and development of indigenous weapons systems, they do still need to purchase systems, technology, hardware from the United States. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the Obama administration has done very little. OK, it's paid, it has sold them some equipment, but there's been great criticism in Washington of how the Obama administration has handled weapons sales to Taiwan, with some people arguing that maybe they just didn't do enough and really didn't show any support for Taiwan's military and they could have done more. I think it's pretty fair to say, mm. though, Hillary Clinton would have a very uh, different approach. She's, uh, I think known for being much more hawkish than Obama. Uh, but I'm not really sure where Trump would come down in all this. It's kinda... I think that yes. might depend what day of the week it was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Uh, so Taiwan's defenses will probably have to wait. I mean, you're probably looking about eight months before any major decisions are made with what the DPP want to do. Mm. But yes. they did start the cyber warfare thing, though, which is quite interesting. Right. Which is going to be a fourth branch of the military. Uh, elevated mm. to a whole extra branch of government. Yeah, yeah, so Pretty interesting. You're going to get the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the Cyber Warfare Division. Mm-hmm. Department, detachment, section, whatever we want to call it. There's Apparently going to be very helpful considering uh, mm. new revelations about how the DPP's own website mm. has been getting hit. Well, apparently mm. it's going to be quite large as well, apparently, mm. because they're, they're, mm. they're projecting employment of like between seven and 10,000 people in mm. this cyber warfare Jeez, that's, detachment. Yeah, that's not bad. Which is slightly larger than the <laughs> section. So I guess it's, 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 it's basically a division, a brigade maybe, mm. a so cyber warfare brigade. They're mm. also expecting to use local industries. Mm-hmm. So it won't just be a military thing. They'll go to the private sector. Right. To get in to get equipment, software and everything to do this cyber warfare unit. And they're also looking at, I believe, several million US dollars in investment opportunities over the next few years for this cyber warfare detachment. Mm. Yeah, um, some analysts say that um, having an open cyber warfare unit might not be the best thing. It's probably better to fight um, this sort of thing covertly, and if mm-hmm. there's sort of too much attention, it could be counterproductive. But, it's like yeah. sort of like making the CIA the fourth branch of <laughs> the military. Yeah, it could be, yeah. Interesting. Uh, okay, well, really quickly before we wrap up this segment, I mean, uh, so mostly here we've been focusing on the military hardware and the purchases and all that, but that's not, I mean, that wasn't really what mm. Tsai Ing-wen was talking about when mm. she visited the base. She was talking a lot more about uh, raising the morale, raising the profile, making it a, uh, the military a better place to work. Do we have any concrete things here? I mean, what, what do we expect in terms of the less hardware aspects of military? Well, apparently morale in the military has been on the rocky slope for uh, some time, if you ask analysts about this. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, then you, 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 have to go, you have to remember there's a question of, like, if you join the military as, a, as an enlisted... Per, as you, if you join voluntarily, you fight for an army, mm-hmm. you fight mm-hmm. for a state. Of course, with Taiwan, it's not simply like you join the British army, for example, you fight for the Queen and Britain. You join the Taiwan Army or the ROC Army, depending how you look at it and view it. Now, do you defend the Republic of China or do you defend Taiwan? And this is an ongoing issue. Mm. Yeah, and that's that's an interesting point because, as Gavin points out, analysts are saying the military felt sidelined by the Ma administration. But on the other side of the coin, I was sort of thinking that the military is mainly full of people of mainland descent. Mm. I know this is becoming increasingly irrelevant, especially with the younger generation. 
but um, the, ma- the army's full of people of mainland descent. And then, as Gavin pointed out, there's the identity question. Mm. And I know under the Chen Shui Bian administration, for example, there were problems because um, people identified with the Republic of China, and mm-hmm. that was very strong in the military. And then, um, you know, the DPP was sort of talking about Taiwan independence, and then Tsai Ing-wen's a woman. So right. all these ethnic and gender issues are going to – the military might have felt sidelined under Ma, but I'm wondering with Tsai Ing-wen if there would be these ethnic and gender issues. Mm. I don't think there would be many gender issues. If there yes. is, I think. I think sighing when she seemed to say there was a woman once called Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> she had no problem yeah. with her army at the time. Yeah, I just read the reports about saying when visiting the base and she was sort of saying, your honour is my honour, your disgrace is my disgrace. And it just went through my head that I wondered that probably mainly, of course, they're female soldiers in Taiwan's army, but they're probably mostly male. And I was wondering how they were relating to that and sort of relating to a female president mm. telling them that. I just thought it'd be interesting. That's all. All right. Yeah. Well, if any of our listeners are uh, male ROC military personnel, please do write into the show. (laughs) Let us know how that speech struck you. Very interested to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, But we're going to have to leave that topic right there and move to our final topic for the broadcast. We got a look this week at public satisfaction for Taiwan's mayors. The Chinese language magazine Global Views Monthly published the results of their annual poll, kind of looking at how the public is feeling. Here's how it works uh, they they kind of took it back to fifth grade and gave it a five-star rating system. Uh, I don't know if respondents were given stickers or how exactly they did it, but they were rated on a star system. And they were uh, all of Taiwan's mayors and commissioners and all that were uh, sort of rated in eight areas, including education, environmental protection, social security, uh, and economy and employment. So uh, that's what respondents were asked to weigh in on. Uh, the polling is in. Uh, And it's kind of the usual suspects uh, who came out on top and who came out on the bottom. No real big surprises here, but kind of some continuations of trends that we've been seeing for a while now. Uh, The big winners are the mayors down south, uh, that being the Chunjus of Kaohsiung and the Willy Lies of Tainan. And slipping into last place, he was already getting kind of weak numbers, but uh, slipping even further is... The mayor cuz of Taipei. So let's start with the winners of this poll. Uh, and to help us out with that, we've got ICRT Southern Taiwan correspondent Michael Smith on the phone, uh, helping us uh, get the view from the south. Uh, Michael, thanks for joining us today. No problem. As uh, we just said, uh, the popularity really is with uh, Mayor Chun Ju. Uh, she got five out of five stars, a perfect rating. Uh, so tell us a little bit what's behind that. Well, uh, Mayor Chen Zhu is a, a fascinating person with a very interesting history. She's actually from Ilan County, way up in uh, northeastern Taiwan, and she went to school at Sun Yat-sen University and spent most of her time actually in northern Taiwan. During the uh, martial law era of Taiwan, she spent six years in jail fighting for democracy, And then finally, after all of that uh, settled down, she went through a variety of uh, positions through different governments. And then in 2006, she became the very first uh, woman to be elected president, uh, sorry, mayor of uh, Kaohsiung. And she won that election by just over a thousand votes. There was a court case and all kinds of uh, uh, recriminations over it. And uh, from that point on, she just went from strength to strength in the southern city here. And uh, during the next election, her vote tally went up to well over 50%. And then finally, she got to run one last time in 2014 as the city and county merged. 
and all of the counties that did that were allowed, their magistrates were allowed to run one more time. And at that uh, election in 2014, she was up to 68.9% of the vote, just killing the other candidates. So she's extremely popular in the city, and even when I speak to people who uh, voted for a different party or are, are not so fond of her, they don't have like significant uh, either hatred or strong criticism of her. They just, you know, perhaps say, oh, I didn't vote for her. But her supporters are very, very passionate, and they, they like her a lot. It's hard to put your finger on exactly what reason there is, and I don't want to sound sexist, but she does exude a, a, a kind of maternal um, feeling, perhaps is, is one way of putting it. She, if, if you're a critic, you could say that this is just politics, but she speaks and the way she acts, her body language, just seems to have the, that feeling of like care. And uh, just as an example, just the other day, a, an issue came up in Kaohsiung where uh, students were parking their motorcycles too close to an MRT station and causing difficulty. So we got an email, all of us journalists, from the uh, mayor's office saying that she had personally gone there to look at it and was figuring out a solution. So little things like this, I mean, you wouldn't think that it's that big of a deal, and she definitely could have sent a uh, subordinate over there to do it. But she went herself and she did it. So... Perhaps it's these little things that are uh, helping to just boost her, her, her numbers. Yeah, and I would say uh, this is maybe even more remarkable considering, uh, you know, for better or for worse, the biggest stories uh, for us up north coming out of uh, Kaohsiung would be uh, the dengue fever last year. Of course, you know, that was a huge problem for Kaohsiung last year. Uh, and then going back even further would be the gas explosion. But uh, despite that, uh, looks like uh, Mayor Chen Zhu is uh, not being pinned with the blame for that. Don't forget the, uh, the, the positive ones that put like s- serious stars on her on her crown, and that would be the World Games in 2009, which were hailed as the best ever in history, and uh, the stadium that was built for that, and the infrastructure that was set up in the city really boosted the not just the external aesthetics of the city, but also the economy. She also went to China uh, during that year and uh, was the only politician that I'm aware of that referred to uh, President Ma as President Ma and made a point of uh, kind of poking China on that, which proved popular back here. Then there was the typhoon uh, Fanapi, which uh, ripped through Kaohsiung on uh, the 19th of September in 2010. She was criticized at that point for napping, they said, that uh, she went home and took a nap during this uh, major typhoon. And instead of doing what many politicians might do, where they're like uh, just trying to find some sort of excuse and wade through it, she actually cried on television, admitted she went home for a nap, said she was sorry, and said, uh, I needed to change my wet clothes and I just needed a nap. And that just sort of nipped it in the bud, and that was it. You know, that was the, the end of the criticism. And as far as the gas explosions go, again, her critics uh, were very, very critical of that uh, reaction. And in fact, they tried to uh, get her in court. There was a subpoena issued, but uh, later that year, the Kaohsiung District Prosecutor's Office decided not to indict her for any sort of negligence. But despite the critics, uh, especially with the gas explosion, she still, at least in my view and in many people's view, she managed to exude that sense of, of care. She went uh, down there, and there's pictures of her 
cradling somebody who lost either a, a, a loved one or perhaps a home or something, and she's crying with the person. It's hard to get beyond those kind of images when it comes to politics. You know, it's really mm. gut politics. And perhaps that works better down here in the South, where perhaps we do have a bit of a different culture than they do up north. But she just seems to get it, and people seem to feel it. Whether it's real or not, I can't tell you. Right, okay, and uh, moving on to the other big winner down south, that would be uh, William Lai. He also got five stars, doing quite well there as well. Uh, What do you think is behind that support? Well, in both cases, in both Tainan and uh, Kaohsiung, over the past several years, we really have seen significant changes to the infrastructure and just to the, the, the city in general. Livability has increased dramatically in both of these cities. If you drive around, and especially if you just take a, a trip from the very bottom of Kaohsiung where they've just put in a new bridge so that trucks don't have to go through a neighborhood that they used to go through all the time, up to the top of Tainan where they've constructed a, a new museum and a new uh, center for uh, old folks and stuff like that, you're seeing stuff being built You're seeing roads uh, be repaired, and you're seeing new infrastructure and this sort of thing. So it's it's hard not to notice these things and feel like, well, the mayor must be doing something right. But again, it does seem that both of them share this sort of, they get out there, you know, they, at least, whether it's real or not, again, I can't say, but they get out there, they're seen on television. When the earthquake occurred not long ago in Tainan, the mayor was there just, all day long. He didn't sleep. He was there for three or four days. He didn't change his clothes. He looked the part very, very well, if you know what I mean. And he did the comforting, and he just played his role to a T. So it's very interesting to watch the trajectories of both of these individuals. Obviously, these Mayor Chenju and Mayor William Lai can't be mayor. For, I mean, there's, there's mayoral elections coming up in two years, but I'm pretty sure that at least one of those mayors doesn't want to be a local government official forever. Probably William Lai. Will he run again? Will he run again? I mean, if these, if these two officials don't run again, could we see a resurgence of the KMT, Michael? Uh, not, not, not at all. I mean, hell would have to freeze over first. It's that kind of thing. Yeah, not in no way whatsoever will there be a KMT uh, leader in either of these cities for I don't know how long to come, if ever. Um, the lock that the DPP has down here on politics is is solid. They are the dominant political party. Uh, the city council is dominated by them, and as we all saw during the last uh, election in Kaohsiung, they took every single possible seat, and uh, no, <laughs> this is the short answer. All right, and uh, on that note, uh, we're going to wrap up our segment with Michael Smith down in Kaohsiung. Uh, that was a look at how the mayors in the southern part of Taiwan are faring. Uh, thank you, Michael, for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. uh, So we're going to move on now, uh, moving back up north. Of course, uh, a lot of Taiwan's mayors were raided, but we're just going to focus on the extremes today. On the extreme other end of that scale would be Mayor Ko Wenja of Taipei. He did not get five stars. He got, uh, what was it, Gavin? He got three and a half stars. Three and a half stars. stars. That doesn't sound terrible to me. Well, now, this year he got three and a half stars, 3.5 stars. But in last year's Global Views Monthly magazine, the report about leadership, he got 4.5 stars. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And this, sadly, this year made Taipei Mayor Kerwinjo the, per- the poorest performing local government chief among the six municipalities. Mm. There you go. I'm a bit torn between this because I think he's getting... I think he's getting, he's getting the right deal. He's getting the wrong end of the stick. I think people mm-hmm. are getting the wrong end of the stick about him, and I think he's getting a rather raw deal. Of course, in recent months, we've had the, if I can say, the abortion, which is the Taipei Dome project, make right. headlines. Uh, just over and over and over uh, again. Yeah, it just never goes away that. They just, just knock it down and build a park. They put trees there, make everyone happy, as far as I'm concerned. There's also been trouble brewing over traffic complaints about the state of the traffic in Taipei. Mm-hmm. Um, not that it's ever affected me, so I don't really know what people are moaning about there, but never mind. That's what we get for getting off in the middle of the day. True. <laughs> Morning shift, not uh, bad. But he has faced a lot of flack in recent months. Now, right. I personally think a lot of... I pers- he's an independent, of course. He's not a member of a political party, and I think a lot of the flack he's getting is because he's not a member of a political party. Mm. So he's getting it from both sides instead of just one side. Right. Well, it's kind of interesting to me. I mean, he came in on a pledge to shake things up. He came in on a pledge to kind of take on some of these entrenched interests. Uh, we saw that in the Taipei Dome project. He he really scrutinized the deal that led to Far Glory having the project. Uh, and he's kind of held Far Glory to the fire. Now, of course, that has meant that the Taipei Dome uh, project has been on hold for a year now. There's just a rusting hulk out there that's uh, deteriorating, causing a huge problem. We don't know uh, where this project is going. And clearly, uh, the citizens of Taipei are, are, are very distressed by that. They want to see uh, a successful project. They're not happy to see where, where it's gone. But, uh, Jane, I mean, what did people expect? This is what he said he was going to do. Yes, um, I think part of the phenomenon with Kerr's um, popularity dropping was it was so high to begin with. Mm. And I sort of wonder if people's expectations were being too unrealistic. Right. Um, it, like it peaked at about 70% after 100 days in office. 70%? That's yes, not bad. Yes. So, I mean, he had a very high position to pull from. Yeah, so true. it could be very high expectations. Um, it's also Kerr is politically inexperienced and he doesn't have much administrative experience. I mean, as everyone knows, he's a, right. heart, a heart surgeon. and Shooting from the hip. Yes. And um, perhaps it's a lack of experience, but then people knew who he was when they elected him. And so I wonder whether the public, the, his vote, people who voted him for, were realistic in expecting a heart surgeon to be able to fix everything all up without experience. All right. Well, uh, very briefly, I guess the final question that we're going to put into this segment is, uh, do we see Mayor Ke as a one-term mayor? Is, is this, uh, you know, he said he would maybe just, you know, keep it going for one term. Is that the way that we think it's going to go? Um, I per- There have been reports in the media that the... Um that both the KMT and the DPP are preparing candidates, and I don't mm-hmm. know whether it's rumour or not. But um, yeah, the the rumour is the DPP's grooming Pursua Yao, and um, the KMT's also looking at um, pr- people from the old administration with experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so that there have been reports in local media that the two political parties think this is a possibility, mm-hmm. and that they're looking for candidates. But mm-hmm. it all depends on how Kerr manages the rest of his term. All right, so uh, the winds of change, the winds of political change uh, perhaps blowing in Taipei. Maybe that'll cool us down a little bit. We could use some of those winds. But uh, let's move to our final topic now, uh, this being our podcast bonus story that we uh, cook up, prepare for our podcast listeners. Uh, Computex is in town. Uh, Gavin, some interesting things at the tech uh, and business fair 
that attracts companies from around the world. Yeah, uh, a couple of local companies, Keith, this year. We had, we had HTC, of course, released their HTC Vive virtual reality headset. Big. That was, that was the big thing for HTC. Mm-hmm. <coughs> at Computex this week. But of course, that really got outshone by Asutech, who released the Zenbo Household Assistant Robot. Zenbo. It made its debut. It waddled on stage, or it rolled on stage, or it hovered on stage, however you want to say this thing moves. It doesn't have legs. It's sort of like a head and a little body thing. Like It's kind of a snowman. Look, basically, it, it People like have been a, yeah. calling it humanoid. It's not humanoid. It's not humanoid. It's no arms, It's more no like legs. a snowman. It's like a snowman, like you said, Keith, and it wobbles around and it moves around. Now, apparently, according to Asutech, this thing is what every household needs. And it's all tied into, the, of course, that thing they call the Internet of Things. Hmm. Being smart things in your house that are all tied into one entity and the one entity runs everything. So, basically, this Zenbo robot technically could do the washing up if you had a Bluetooth or something system in your dishwasher. But it doesn't have arms. I don't quite... No, you just program the robot to tell the dishwasher Ah, to do the washing up at a certain time. Uh Uh-huh. You, if you have children and you need security gates, for example, and Mm -hmm. you need to open a security gate at a certain time, you tell the robot to open the security gate. Uh-huh. There you go, and you can watch. If you need a program recorded off the television, obviously not on VHS or Betamax anymore, but if you need that, you can tell this robot Zembo, hey, I'm going to be out at 7 o'clock tonight. Can you record that show for me? I'm still not getting why this thing needs a face. I mean, could ah, it also cause it needs a face because it can apparently talk to people. Okay. You can say, oi, how's the weather today? And the robot will go, <laughs> it is raining and very cold. If I can find a clip of the robot talking, we'll see if uh, we can yep, get a better impression than what Gavin just served up right there. Hi, I am Zenbo. It is a pleasure to meet you. Apparently, it's they didn't they have no release date for the Zenbo, but it's going to retail at six hundred US dollars. Six hundred US big yep. ones. Okay, okay. But as we as we were talking the other day, Keith, this robot wanders around the house when you're mm-hmm. away. So it wanders around the house like a pet. Basically, it like a Roomba. Like a Roomba. Mm. It'll turn the TV on, it'll turn your stereo on, it'll turn the computer on, do the washing up, whatever. Might even make you a shopping list. Who knows? If it gets the wrong malware, maybe it'll it kill you do, in your sleep. What it won't yes. do is clean the floor. Ah, and I unlike thought, a Roomba. I would have thought if you had a robot walking around the kitchen and the house all day, you might as well just stick it over underneath it and you might as well over the floor at the same time. Might as well, or just a Swiffer pad, one of the two. There you go. So, Jane, uh, is, uh, is the Zenbo coming to a Jane Ricard's house near you? Uh, Sounds like you're not totally sold on this guy. No. <laughs> you don't have 600 big ones lying around to uh, get a little robot Hoover vac? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, so that's that's the hottest thing that came out of Computex this year? That was the biggest thing. That was the big, That made the international headlines. Okay. I mean, it, I, I, we could sit here and talk about motherboards, <laughs> processors... Chips and things, but that might be a bit boring. Uh oh, I think our uh, our end music is playing, so I guess uh, that's our cue to wrap things up uh, and leave those scintillating subjects behind. That is it for Taiwan this week. Please do join us again next time. Taiwan this week broadcasts every Friday evening at 8:30 p.m. right here on ICRT FM 100. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website on iTunes, uh, and we've just started posting to the ICRT blog. You can find it there as well. Uh, signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined as always by Gavin Phipps. 
Yeah, I'm going to go and get my Zen bow out now. Okay. <clears throat> uh, you don't need to tell the listeners that. And also in studio with us this evening is Jane Rickards. Thank hey. you, Jane. Thanks, Kate. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week.